You're listening to Women's Issues, Women's Voices here on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. This is Sarah Catlin, your host, and my guest tonight is Elizabeth McBride, and she's the author of a new book that has just come out called The New Builders, Face-to-Face with the True Future of Business. And we're going to have a very interesting chat for the next hour talking about her and her work and this book that came out two days ago. So it's so fresh, the ink is still smelly. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. I'm always just interested in hearing about how people came to do the things they do. So go back. How did you develop in your career path to become to be a business journalist? That's I've never met a business journalist. So how does one do that? Wow. Well, it's kind of um, like a lot of women's careers. Mine looks more like a quilt than a linear line a linear line than a linear progression. So I became a journalist because I was sitting down uh, filling out my college application to the University of Maryland where I eventually went and my dad, I had put English down on the application line and my dad walked behind me and said, that is not practical enough, Elizabeth. <laughs> and so I erased it, you know, cause it was the days of like pencil when you filled it out in pencil and I put journalism. Um, So that's how I ended up being a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, after I worked at the paper and loved it um, in my four years at Maryland and did a bunch of internships at newspapers. Um, And then when I graduated, it was in the into the recession of the early 90s. And there were literally there were like no jobs for journalists. It was very sharp, deep recession. People who are my age. Well, remember that. And um, so the only place I could find a job was at a business newspaper. So that's how it happened. Like I just fell into it, um, but ended up loving it. um, And it ended up being very fortuitous. So I just worked my way up. I became an editor. I moved to New York. I was editing a business newspaper in New York. Then I had kids and like a lot of women, I pulled back. I didn't want to work 60 hours a week. So I have two daughters. Uh, One of them is graduating this year, headed to University of South Carolina, which makes me super proud. But what happened is seven years ago, and this is the real pivot in my story to use business language, I got a divorce. So seven years ago, I found myself with kind of this part-time career that I had been doing, which was rewarding, but not not financially enough rewarding to support my household. And I was like, whoa, what am I going to do? Um, And really, the only thing I knew how to do was journalism. And so I just thought, I've got to ramp this up. I've got to figure out some way to make this pay my bills, which, as you know, from being a journalist yourself, right? I mean, journalism has just been just a terrible, (laughs) it's been a mess, right? It's been a mess for a couple of decades. Journalism has lost more jobs than steel in the United States over the past Um, and so I really had to become an entrepreneur in order to be a journalist. I was going to say your story could be in your book. Like this story <laughs> sort of fits. Yeah, honestly. It, it and, we'll, and we'll talk more as we go through the hour about why I say that. But that, I'm finding that connection. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, I, so I just like sort of invented this. I became an entrepreneurial journalist or an entrepreneur and a journalist. Um, made my own business covering a lot of issues I thought needed to be covered. And eventually two years ago, I had built up enough of a career in that realm that a couple of foundations gave me grants to to launch my own publication, Uh uh, which is called Times of Entrepreneurship. And so I thought the stories of entrepreneurs who were more like me than the ones in Silicon Valley were worth telling. That's the line. And I was lucky because in this, along this journey, I met Seth Levine, who is a venture capitalist, a very successful one um, who lives in Boulder, Colorado. And he has a passion for the same things that I do, right? Which is telling the stories and supporting founders who don't fit that narrative, which in his day job, he actually funds a lot of tech companies, uh-huh. and, you know, people who do fit that mold, but the rest of the work he does is really in this sphere. So we collaborated on this book. That is, yeah, how interesting. So tell me a little bit more about Times of Entrepreneurship. Is this, an, is this online? Is it actually a print, a physical print? Not yet, although I've been thinking about that. It, uh-huh. is, it is online. You can find it at timesofe.com. Times of and it's, very, it's, okay. it's small. We have one full-time reporter and a couple of part-time people who help me in different mm-hmm. ways. We're still looking 
for you know a business model and funding i launched it on february 12th oh that's so really new well february 12th a year ago okay so, oh gosh right at the beginning of when everybody was locking down here anyway. exactly like i launched it february 12th if it had been like a month later i might not have launched right, right. but what happened is we were up and running and the pandemic hit after we had been after we launched and i was like well what am i going to do right am i going to just shut down and wait or should I just keep going and so I thought well I'm a journalist I've got this platform I'm just going to do what I know how to do which is write stories and so I was writing I for a while I said you know what I need to conserve my cash so I'm going to write every story on the whole thing for like and I did that for like three months I was exhausted at the end of it but one of the good things that happened is that I was working with Seth on this book and the reporting I was doing on Times of E combined with the research for the book led us to write an op-ed for CNBC saying, Washington, you are really missing the picture of the small businesses that need help. And that op-ed on CNBC was a huge hit. And we later got an email from Tim Kaine's chief of staff saying, hey, I just want you to know we've used this research to help reshape the PPP. Oh, now isn't that the best feeling? Because I know that's kind of your whole point in writing the book, really. It's like, let's fix this broken system, which we'll talk about. Let's, let's support these new builders. We felt really good about that. And it was, you know how you need those kicks along your journey, like somebody, like a kick or a tug, somebody saying, hey, you need to keep going. I know it's hard, but you need to keep taking these steps along this path. And so, because it's working or it's about to work, or you really made a difference. Like right. here's the place where you made an actual tangible difference for someone else. So I love poetry, right? And one of Emily Dickinson's poems is something like, I'll let my head be just in sight, a smile as small as mine might be precisely their necessity. That's right. So I always think of that, right? You just don't know as you're moving about your day, like what kinds of encouragement you're delivering to other people. You know, you just don't know if somebody needs that spark. Right at that moment. And Mike Henry, that's Tim Kaine's chief of staff, really provided that spark to me at the right time. So that's lovely. Again, I love giving airtime to projects like this because who knows who's listening right Mm -hmm. now, who's maybe Mm -hmm. thinking about starting a business or is just starting a business is in that first three months where they're exhausted and they're like, why am I, why did I even do this? Is it ever going to happen? So maybe we'll provide some guidance and some resources and some, just that kick to somebody who hears this. Yes. You know, my main takeaway after having read your book is that most of the perceptions I had about what American business like are kind of wrong, like the scale of things and who's doing what and how many, what percentage of people are doing what. And so I I picture this first half of our conversation just kind of being a talking about the series of misconceptions I have that you dispel the myths that you dispel in the in your book, which I thought was just fascinating. Thank you. First of all, and I was totally in this, I mean, I live in a house with a person who started an internet startup and that came into, that built into a phone company here in our little town. So the Silicon Valley model is something that we talk, you know, the Silicon Valley stuff and the, we talk about people, these people at the dinner table, you know, Elon Musk and all these, you know, people, I mean, this is, this is what we talk about. So for me, it was really funny to read this and to read your, your talk about you know, how did we become so focused on this model or this narrative of Silicon Valley startups being kind of the end-all be-all of like the successful business? That's a really interesting question. You got right to the, to one of the big issues that yeah. we have. And so what we found when we researched it, and this was a surprise to Seth, who you would think would know this because mm-hmm. he's in the venture he's capital world. Right in the middle of it. Yeah, and I didn't know it either. I've been covering business for all these years, but only 1% of businesses in the United States take venture capital funding. And, but they, they really dominate like all of our media, right? Um, And I think all of our, uh, so much of our mind share. So 99% of businesses do not take venture capital. They're nothing like the tech startup. So really the universe of businesses is very different. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why that narrative took over. One of them being that venture-backed businesses by nature grow very fast. And we have a fascination in our culture right now or this like thing about we want it to be, we want everything to be fast and easy. And that's what that myth is all about. It's all about like, oh, it's fast and easy. 
I mean, they're even aware of it, right? Because they call themselves unicorns. It's a mythical, mm-hmm. right? It's all so much marketing and so much invention. And basically we love it because we have fallen for the marketing, right? Yeah. I don't even think it's really true for those tech startup founders. It isn't fast and easy. In fact, most of those tech startups take longer than we think, and it's much harder than we think. So that's the first reason. I think the second issue, which is more focused and I think political, is that I think it has become like this definition of Silicon Valley as the definition of entrepreneurship is valuable, serves the interests of various people. And the way you can understand that by the history. So when we looked into it and Margaret O'Mara, who is a fantastic historian um, at the University of Washington has written a great book called um, The Code, which is like a history of Silicon Valley. Um, And she, so she really writes about this in her book. And what happened is that in the early 80s, as uh, Silicon Valley was taking off, and remember, it was the days of Apple and Steve Jobs. And I don't know if you know that iconic commercial when Apple um, was um, taking on Big Blue, IBM. I think Ronald Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan at the time was the governor of California. (laughs) He was kind of well aware of this rise of this new kind of company in Silicon Valley. And I think as he was putting together the coalition that became the modern day Republican Party, he really saw how he could use this kind of spirit of tech innovation to become a political force. So he used the word entrepreneur, gave it to this group of business people in Silicon Valley, and then used it to kind of forcefully project America's visions onto the rest of the world. He gave a speech um, in the Soviet Union where he said, you know, these young entrepreneurs embody the best of American spirit. They're innovative, they're free thinking, you know, fit right with Silicon Valley's marketing. Um, And so that, that political edge to the definition of entrepreneurship became really forceful, right? Because politics have become more powerful, more aggressive in the past couple of decades. So the fact that that was woven into that mix, I think, is one of the reasons that entrepreneurship now has been defined in this way. And I think I could go on about this for a long time, but the other, it's it's very interesting in that. It's a big question. I asked you a big question. I I recognize (laughs) that. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you do. Yeah. Because it is a big question, because the other thing you really have to dissect, and this runs through our book in a a bunch of different ways, is that part of Reagan's message, which was so powerful, is that libertarianism, that idea of libertarianism, right? This marketed idea of tech innovation fits perfectly with the libertarian ideology, because if you can count on those tech entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley to innovate, to invent what our society needs, um, then you don't have to really pay for it with government research. You can buy into this idea that we don't need to tax the wealthy very much because we just need to let them be innovators and start these great companies and we'll produce all the economic growth we need. And it'll all trickle down. (laughs) And it'll all trickle down. And everyone will benefit. (laughs) Which we now know a couple of decades later, four decades later, really didn't work. It really didn't work, right? Our society is so much um, more bifurcated now. So yeah, and I think Silicon Valley has a, has a real um, role in that. And the, the redefinition of entrepreneurship is part of that broader narrative. Yeah. I'll just add one more thing, sure. which is that the whole thing is kind of like the house built on sand, right? Because the truth of the matter is that Silicon Valley, though it markets itself as a libertarian outside the government place, um, was actually built on the money that came from the government in the form of defense contracts in the middle of the 20th century. Silicon Valley never would have launched without this huge flow of government money. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's still, if you're out in the valley, there is plenty of work that comes from the government that funds it. 
at companies. They don't send press releases or make commercials about it, but it, it's very present there in the Valley. So it, that was, you know, one, that's another kind of spur as we wrote the book was the realization of how much of the narrative about entrepreneurship had been co-opted by the political interests. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of a, you know, it's that the myth, like the unicorns, the rags to riches, you know, to white male, let's say, right? Yeah. Or maybe maybe there's an Indian for some color, right? Uh, sitting in a garage. Yeah. I can't think of it. What is the name of that sitcom? Is it called Silicon Valley? Uh, you know which I, one I mean about the tech startup? I do, but I've never, I've never. I'm blanking it. on it, but it's so much <laughs> feeds yeah. this whole thing that, you know, you start out in your garage and you're all grungy and you're drinking lots of Diet Coke. And then the next thing you know, you get your big, you know, somebody invests and then you're millionaires all of a sudden or billionaires. Right. It's like, you know, it's like the lottery ticket. It's like that whole romance of, you know, having a great idea that takes off. And said, there is something about our culture that just really loves a narrative like that. Yeah. Somebody who gets, gets lucky, you know, Cinderella is a story like that, right? Yes. <laughs> and it's okay. Like, I think it's okay to celebrate luck and celebrate those wins. It's just not okay. Maybe to base government policy on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then the next thing I was going to ask you about, I think just sort of you segued really nicely into this when you said the idea was that all this innovation and these new businesses would help everyone because at the very same time, if I was to understand your book correctly, that all this was happening, there was a, a shift in in the philosophy of business. And we started looking more, it started being more about the shareholder than the business. Yeah. So you have all this money going in and supposedly it's gonna help, but then the money that they're making is going somewhere else. Do you wanna say a little bit about that? Yeah, I loved that question when I saw that you had uh, sent it ahead of time. And yeah, that's exactly what we concluded, right? That, that it was a perfect storm, if you will, right? All this, the political stuff was happening, the tech innovation was happening, and then you've got Milton Friedman coming along. He's not the only one. He's sort of become symbolic of this line of thinking, um, but he really made the case that the, the best way that society would work is if people are free, free to choose, right? It's that whole libertarian, again, dynamic coming into the way that big companies thought about how they should spend their money. And what it ended up doing, so there's been tons and tons of discussion about it, but we found that there's been very little discussion about how this change in mindset affected the small business economy in the U.S., which is one of the reasons, again, that we thought it was so important to write the book. Because what happened is that at the same time that the, this idea of a free market was taking over policies in Washington, big businesses are thinking, I have very little obligation to my communities anymore because the free market is just going to take Oh, it's going to make it all right. It's going to make it work in the best way for everybody. Um, and so they started then, if you took that responsibility away, they didn't need to employ people anymore. They could be as lean, lean, lean as possible. They could, in fact, return all of their profits to shareholders instead of reinvesting back um, either in their communities, in their workers, or in, and this is why it's so important for the small business economy, in innovation. So even, that, and they're even their own businesses. Right, exactly. just being able to do what they're doing better, longer, more successfully. Yeah, that's just, that just, I've never understood that. It just seems like you're, what is it, biting your nose to spite your face. Yeah. You're just milking all the value out of the thing you've created and just starving it. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is exactly, if you look at big companies, mm -hmm. um, kind of what they do, like yeah. all the it is is that innovation does not come from big companies, even the ones that try really hard at it like they used to do, you know, AT&T had that famous lab in the early 20th century. If you work really hard at it, you can produce innovation in a big company, but it's, it's difficult. You really need some innovation really happens in small companies. And then the fact that big companies even abandon the whole idea of trying to fund innovation in a lot, in a lot of ways, right? In the past couple of decades, um, it just means that we're really not innovating at the pace that we were in the middle of the 20th century. And it's hard, I think it's really hard for people to recognize that because how do you know what innovations aren't happening, right? How do you measure that? You just, it's, I don't know, could we have had like a tissue sample that would have enabled us to produce a vaccine in like a month yeah. instead of 
year, right? You just, you, we don't know because we haven't been investing in it to the extent that we used to. Well, if you're just tuning in at home, this is Sarah Catlin and Women's Wishes, Women's Voices. And I'm talking with Elizabeth McBride, who has a new book coming out, just came out two days ago. And it's called The New Builders Face-to-Face with the True Future of Business. And I don't want to make the mistake of the broader culture. We just gave a whole bunch of bandwidth to Silicon Valley, although we were cutting them down, not raising them up, I guess. But then, you know, the next thing we want to talk about are these new builders, because that was, you know, the hopeful and interesting and inspiring part of the book are all these stories that you've collected and then all the research you've done to talk about who these, these individual stories, what they represent, the larger picture. So let's talk about this. Who are the new builders of your title? Because they aren't exactly new. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, they're new in the context of recognizing them as new, right? right? Yeah. Uh, but it, the truth is that women and people of color. Okay, so let me back up a minute yeah. and say, if you look at the stats, um, there's another way that our perception of business is just utterly wrong. Our perception of it as a male-dominated and especially a white male-dominated space is just completely wrong. Um, in fact, I looked up, like um, spurred by your question, we have in the book that women will soon be the majority of entrepreneurs in the United States. Um, And I looked it up today and I think they're past that, especially with what's happened in the pandemic. There are about, before the pandemic, there were about 24 million small businesses. That means like an entity that's fairly formal, um, has one or more employees. There are about 24 in the U.S. and women own 13 million of them. So 24. Yeah. So women are more than half of all entrepreneurs in the U.S. You got to take a minute and think about that because- women, you know, nobody would probably guess that. Like, I'm not sure I would have guessed that. And I've been doing this my, my whole career, right? What kind of a feminist am I that I'm not even, they're not even on my radar, right? Right, right. Exactly. But when I think about it, and when you explain it, it totally makes sense. You mentioned in your book that historically, women's industry, I'll call it, has been undercounted because often it's seen as an extension of housework. Like going back to like a little house on the prairie, right? I mean, they were washerwomen. They were mm-hmm. selling their eggs, their extra mm-hmm. eggs. I mean, women have always been trying to have a side hustle. Every woman I know has a side hustle. Some of them right. more form- formal than others. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. And when you think of the way that we've defined business, it's you, you start to get to the age that we are. And then you start to think this has all been sort of deliberate, right? Because because nobody wants women to have this economic power. That's that I think that's the fundamental issue, right? We're both gonna show our stripes as feminists here, yeah. probably. But so I was thinking today, um, in preparation for this interview, okay, like midwifery, which is obviously a business, uh-huh. right? Obviously, okay. Well, they were maybe the, the second oldest profession, yeah, <laughs> right? Because you get the first exactly. oldest profession that would fuel the second oldest profession. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But and so not to define that as a business and not to count women as business owners and that is crazy. But I think that's what was done historically, and it kind of laid the foundation now for for this misperception we have and the fact that we're not seeing women's labor and women's entrepreneurial intent as kind of a business when in actuality it is well then because god forbid we have to actually recognize women's labor and and compensate them for it especially the labor they do in families and as nurturers that's just expected of them in addition to their actual real work of going you know working a factory job or you know doing whatever they're doing to get a paycheck yeah, all that extra labor is just expected of women. So yeah, can you imagine if we started demanding to be compensated for all the work we do for our families and our communities? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That yeah. like recognizing the true value of women's businesses is like the spear tip or the slippery slope because then you have to really think about, okay, what is women's labor in general work? Mm-hmm. I, I, and I what's work. it worth? Yeah. Yes, you're exactly right, I think. But okay, it's time now, right? We have done all this work. And and I wrote this in our chapter about women, right? I think that the smart women now are recognizing that this is the next frontier in the women's movement is economic power. And part of that, the way you get economic power is not just through labor movements and not just through unions, but is in owning your own business and becoming an owner rather than a laborer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think recognizing women's businesses and 
reshaping the finance system, reshaping our government policies to support women-owned businesses is just crucial. Recovering from the pandemic, if we can figure out how to get capital to these 13 million women-owned businesses, think how much faster our economy would grow. Like what kind of innovations would we have coming out of that? Sort of takes, it takes your breath away, right? Mm -hmm. I think it really powerful. And that's why we're telling the stories of these women business owners who are obviously great business people, mm -hmm. right? Just obviously are. So why did they have to fight so hard to get the support that they, that is just freely given to white men? We're going to talk about that next. Hang around. We're going to take a quick break for some station business and we'll be right back with Women's Issues, Women's Voices. And we're back with Women's Issues, Women's Voices. I'm your host, Sarah Catlin, and I'm talking to Elizabeth McBride, who has a new book that just came out two days ago. It's called The New Builders, Face-to-Face -face with the True Future of Business. And we were talking before the break about myths and dispelling myths, this myth of the Silicon Valley startup, this myth that white men are the sort of poster child for business, that it's actually more women than men are starting businesses. And I kind of want to keep going along that vein and talk about, you, you hinted at right before the break, that women have had to work harder. They're obviously good business people because they've had to work harder to get where they're at. Let's talk a little bit about the challenges that the actual people who are starting businesses, the majority of them who are, as you point out in your book, they're female, they're immigrants, mm -hmm. which I found fascinating. Am I getting it wrong that the immigrants start businesses at two to one? Yes, twice the rate of the native born population. Yeah. Which I thought was astounding and people of color are, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and they face some challenges that their white male counterparts don't in, in starting up their, their businesses. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Let's see. I, I think I should tell a story here that maybe will illustrate or maybe two stories. That'd um, be great. Yeah. So one of the really inspiring entrepreneurs that we met um, and whose story is told in the book is Denaris Mazzara, who is an immigrant from the Dominican Republic by way of Puerto Rico. Her family came from Puerto Rico. And she moved to the U.S. like in the 80s, I think. No, maybe the not. In any case, she moved to the U.S., um, was working with a factory job with her husband, who also had a factory job. And then in the Great Recession, he lost his job. So their family was really in pretty dire financial straits to the extent that um, although she was working a factory job at Samsung, they didn't have enough to pay their bills. And there was one day that her mother came by and said, I know you're in a hard time right now. Here's $37 of food stamps. And Denaris, the way she tells the story, she was laying on her couch, staring at the ceiling, thinking, what are you going to do with $37? in food stamps? This isn't even enough to pay for a week of groceries. And she decided to take the money and use it to buy the ingredients for flan. She made the flan. God um, told her it's the best yes. story. God said, make flan. And she's like, yeah, I've never flan. made flan in my life. <laughs> right. I know. I, I, yes. Um, it's yes. okay. We could just say it. I mean, people okay. get their inspiration where they get it, you know, yeah. and that's what yeah. God spoke yeah. and, yeah. and, may, and may, maybe God did speak to her because look, yes, it worked out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So she heard God's voice saying make flan. Um, and so she made the flan. The first batch was actually ruined, um, but she tried again. Her mother called in the interim and encouraged her to try again. So she tried again. She made the flan. It sold off the break room table at Samsung for a dollar. Was, was it $6 a slice? I thought it said in the book. It was I, ridiculous. I think it was just one. To start with. But then she realized, I think people would yes. $6 for a little slice of, you know, eggs and milk. So it just, it blew up, right? Um, and that was the beginning of her bakery business. And then she kept pushing and pushing. Uh, some women from the neighborhood got together, helped her learn how to bake cakes for real. She wasn't a big baker before. Yeah. But she just took to it naturally, was growing this business. Um, and then came a particular um, a turn in her story that really shows, I think, what's possible if women business owners do receive support. So she was struggling probably for two, three, four years before she heard about a program called Entrepreneurship for All, which was started by, in fact, one of those tech founders we were just kind of bashing in the first part of the interview, which just shows you this is a very nuanced story because what happened is that Desh Deshpande, who is a telecom entrepreneur 
from the 90s who made more than a billion dollars. I don't know how many billions of dollars he made, but he's very wealthy now and he gives a lot of it back to, to causes in India and his cause in the United States is entrepreneurship. So he's funded a program called Entrepreneurship for All that helps people like Denaris with the financing, with the kind of education, with the moral and emotional support they need to take the next step. Um, and he recruited an actual bona fide, he looks a in a million ways like the tech founder and like the tech uh, executive we're talking about. He had he was involved in six successful tech startups, went to Andover, went to Harvard for two degrees. Like he was just, but at a certain point he thought, this is not what my life, this is not all my life should be. And so he left that successful tech career to help entrepreneurs like Denaris, that his name is David. So they came together and really through this program supported Denaris in creating a successful bakery that now employs 16 people in Lawrence, Massachusetts. So it's really a success story, but in a lot of ways it illustrates our issues, right? Like why should somebody as smart and entrepreneurial as Denaris have to struggle for four years, have to start with $37 in food stamps? And face starvation for her and her family. Yes, like, like why? Dire. Do, right, like why? Something is just not working if you've got like a 22-year-old dude who can like walk in somewhere and get handed $15 million mm -hmm. as quote a seed round, but, but Denaris has, has no support at all. And really, you know, glad she lucked into entrepreneurship for all, but that exists really in only a limited number of communities. Right. I, you know, these stories, I think that are scattered through the book are really are asking the question of what if, right? What if we changed our mindset and recognized the value of this other kind of entrepreneur and figured out how to capitalize them, um, how to support them, I think our economy would just be much healthier. Because, you know, as we talked about in the first half of the hour, these are the majority of businesses that are being started, the vast right. majority. Right. 99% are, are like Donaris, not like right. Desh or David or, you know, these right. other people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and one of, you know, the other thing, it's not just a what if story, because we're not saying like pie in the sky, like let's try something we've never tried before because it used to be more like this, right? In fact, when you look back at the middle of the 20th century, in fact, our economy was better for small business owners of the general kind. The number of banks in the United States, I think this is just the clearest indication, shrank from, I'm gonna get the numbers right in front of me, because you're, you know, that was actually the next thing I was going to ask you about was the yes. consolidation of big banks and the decline of the community bank. Oh because my God. My mother, her first job out of her two year degrees, like secretarial type degree was as a teller and she worked as a teller and then a teller supervisor up to a bank vice president. That was her first wow. year. They forced wow. her out because she was a woman and they wanted to sell stocks oh. after 40 some years. Yeah. That was her thanks. But yeah, so another thing that we talked we talked about around the dinner table was this banking stuff. So all this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like my family. This is the story of my parents' careers, basically. Oh my gosh, you're warming my heart. Actually, yeah. that, our, that our book was like- Yeah, our, yeah. Okay, so you're looking for those numbers because I know it's hard to remember. And, you know, and, and right in there too, yeah, the banks are, are being consolidated. Let me see if I can help you. I got it. Yeah. And so in 1994, there were 14,400 commercial banks in the United States. Today, there are 5,000. So like, like two thirds of them. Two thirds decline. Um, and what, I mean, what that means, and the, all of that decline really was, um, almost all of it was in the community banks and in the small banks and in the minority owned banks, actually. There used to be more black owned banks in the United States. And so what it means is that um, entrepreneurs like a Donaris maybe 50 years ago might have been able to go to a community bank much earlier in her process and get the support she needed to expand. What, what I've been told is called a name loan. It's like they know you, they know the community, they know yeah. she's trying to, they, they would know her. They would right. tell she was working hard. They knew that there was Dominicans there in town who would buy the cakes for these celebrations. There was a natural market for it. Yeah. It, was a, it was a win. Right, like somebody exactly. that's in that community could could value all that and sort of guess that it was going to be a success. Yes. Somebody exactly. at Citibank in New York City or Washington, D.C. or California is not going to 
have that knowledge of the community, first of all, they're not going to care. They're not going to spend the time to get to know and do the research to care about somebody who's probably asking for $5,000. Right. That's exactly. Like, it's not worth the paperwork, the time it would take them to do the paperwork to fund that. Right. Because yeah. of what we talked about earlier, right? This whole idea of that what's rewarded now in our economy is go is big, go mm-hmm. big or go home. So all the employees in the banks, not all of them, obviously yeah. I don't but many employees then in the banks are thinking about, okay, how do I, how do I make a loan to a business who's going to be really big, right? Or how do I move up in the bank hierarchy to work in the big trading platform, right? right? Mm-hmm. It just, people are not incentivized at all to help and support the small end of the economy. And that's a shift. Mm-hmm. If we used to be able to do that. So then the question is, why can't we go back to it? Because we can. Yeah. Why? We can build the economy that we want to build. We do not have to give it over to market forces when market forces don't work for what we want to do. Or result in the kinds of communities and and economies that we want to live in and participate and support. Yeah. 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 So, so right. And so then a piece we sort of skipped over, we were talking about how women aren't getting support, but, and then we should just, I have to at least mention that largely it's not surprising there's racism in lending which is not a surprise to anybody so if you're a a business owner a small business owner of color or a female business owner of color even less likely if you do go to get asked for money to get what you ask for and they're in the book everybody who is interested in this conversation should read this book it's very uh, approachable it's not hard it's a quick read it's very clearly written anybody you can just breeze through it and it just lays it out so clearly that it's just it's it's astounding the blatant racism and, and sexism that's that's obvious in, in the rates and the, the research that you've done. Yeah, it is. And it's not, it's not hard to find any of the things that we've put in the book. I think what is, I'm, I'm super proud of the book. So I'm going to say, I think what's great about it, and it's also a result of a collaboration. So I don't feel like I'm patting only myself. On uh-huh. But I think I what's great. That's so female, right? To not want to like toot your own horn, as they say. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I, it, it is, I think what is great about the book is that it pulls together in a readable way all of these different ideas and puts it into a pretty, I mean, it's a slim, it's not like yeah. a hefty, hefty thing, uh-huh. it's a slim package. And, you know, so much of the good work that goes on focuses on different areas of the economy and we put it together, right, yeah. in a way that we did try and make deliberately readable and that's why we found the case studies of the entrepreneurs yeah. We're all so generous, like it's sharing the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, but the rate, yes, the racism piece, because we shouldn't get away from that because oh. what you have to recognize the single fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs are women of color. So the why that's happening, it makes sense if you think about who the entrepreneurs are today, people of color, women, women of color, immigrants. Okay, it's people who don't find an easy foothold in our go big or go home economy, right? Maybe they don't speak the language. They don't speak the emotional language of the corporate world. I mean, we should all be so aware. Women should be so aware of that, especially now after the pandemic, right? When all these big companies just hung working women out to dry and gave them no support during the pandemic. But for sure, right, that I think those people are starting businesses because the corporate world's fairly inhospitable to them. But when they they go to seek a bank loan at the shrinking number of banks, they do find it harder and they get approved for smaller amounts of capital than their white counterparts. The other thing that's really important to recognize because it gets to the systemic racism in our country is that as the financial system for small businesses has really disintegrated, the only people who have the wherewithal to start businesses have wealth to begin with. Yeah. Right. And so like a business owner today will say, well, I went and asked my aunt, uncle, I pulled out a home equity loan. I did that, this, that. Well, that has to do with family wealth that's been accumulated over generations. And Black families have 10 times less that accumulated wealth than a white family. At every level of education, that holds true. Yeah. Even a college educated Black family will have 10 times less what a white family does. And so if you look at the uh, people who are entrepreneurial, they just don't have the resources to start businesses. Mm-hmm. So, But they're not- so driven because they're driven by this necessity. Exactly, right? Yeah. Because they can't, 
make it in the corporate world or they don't right. want to. Right. They also, I think, have a truer kind of, if you've been an outsider for your whole life, you have a pretty clear vision of what's wrong with being inside. Yeah. Um, right. They just do phenomenal things from the outside. You and, use the uh, word disruptors in your book. They're disruptors, yeah, which I love. Are, right. Because they have yeah. a different, they have a better. I want to say better. This is my personal point of view. They have a better sense of what's important in life, right? And it's not this idea of consume, 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 which I think we're we're moving away from now. Okay, these entrepreneurs figured that out ten years ago. So I think the entrepreneurs of today will be at the forefront of um, reshaping the economy after the pandemic, away from consumption, more toward experience, more toward service, more toward community value. Yeah. All those things. We've only got maybe 15 minutes left. And so if you're just tuning in, we're, we're talking with Elizabeth McBride. We're talking about her book, The New Builders Face-to-Face with the True Future of Business, which just came out two days ago. There are things that we can do. There are things we can do as a society, society, and there are even a few things we can do as individuals. And so let's make sure we get to some of that so we don't just leave people thinking it's hopeless, lenders are racist, there's no money. I quit, right? I was thinking about starting a, a baking business in my kitchen, but obviously the, the deck is stacked against me. Why bother? No, we don't want to leave people there. No, 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 we don't. Um, and I don't feel that way, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people working on all of these issues now to begin with. So if you do want to start a business now, you should go and check out what resources in your community there are for you. And some of those Um, our community loan programs. They're quiet, but they exist in a lot of places um, that really do offer a lot of support for small businesses who don't fit that tech software or white Ivy League educated model. There are still some community banks. We highlight one um, in Oklahoma City um, that does great work. So if I, if I were starting a business, I would totally find the community bank around me. I would not spend a whole lot of time working with the big bank. Yeah. Um, there are... Um, Can you talk to me about CDFIs? Yes. That was a total, I had never, I had no idea this thing even existed. Yeah, it's funny, right? They're, um, again, I think to some extent caught up in the po- political stuff because they were a program started in the Clinton administration and especially during the Trump administration, like they were nobody's favorite child, right? But they are uh, federally financed um, institutions that in some ways are meant to take the place of the community banks, but they just don't have the same kind of sustainable business model that community banks used to thrive with um, because they mostly rely on the federal funding. But they make very small loans for entrepreneurs who, who don't fit into the big banks rubric for lending. And we found them in really doing like amazing work. Denaris eventually got a loan with the help of eForAll from a CDFI in Lawrence. Another of the entrepreneurs we covered, Carmen, who was the first chocolatier in the state of Arkansas, a black woman, the daughter of a single mom. Um, and she's got an amazing story. Um, she folded, she had to fold during the great recession when she was first trying to make her chocolates but was able to survive the pandemic because in the interim, she had gotten a relationship with a CDFI. Mm -hmm. And she's got a tiny business, right? I think she has two employees plus herself. Mm -hmm. So that's not big enough where a chase or a big bank is gonna pay attention, but she was able to find a CDFI who supported her. And in the pandemic, the CDFI called and said, hey, here are the programs, here's what you need to do. Right. It's that kind it's of mentorship, right? It's mentorship yeah. and networking and having, yeah. And that they reached out to her is amazing. I just Googled quickly on my phone, CDFI Columbia, Missouri, for everyone who's uh, listening and thinking I need that. And several popped up in Kansas city and St. Louis, which are an easy drive for us. So there's some locally here. Yes. Yeah, so I would say, right. Pursue those. I think the SBA also people call it, um, a crown jewel, like around the rest of the world, people are like, wow, the U.S. has that, tends to not be celebrated enough and definitely not supported with enough resources to gather data. So it's behind, there's not enough data on a small business economy. Mm-hmm. So if you want to start business, uh, your own business, I would tell you that you should do it. You can do it. My um, opinion, my advice is to make it a formal business as quickly as you can. Like you would think, okay, I can be entrepreneurial with like gig, whatever, Uber, 
I think all of those have a place. 60 million people in the United States participated in the entrepreneurial economy, but you get so many advantages from formalizing yourself, your idea as a business and pursuing it that way. Tax advantages, you find it easier to find healthcare, all of these things that are seen as huge obstacles. They are hard. They're not as hard as you think they are. And talking about things that our culture could do, I mean, healthcare is huge, right? So much so healthcare is tied to your employment, which means people are shackled to their jobs. And so as much as we can, and of course we, Medicaid expansion was just voted down here in Missouri. We actually passed a constitutional amendment. The voters said not, it was bipartisan support. We want Medicaid for all. We want Medicaid expansion. We passed a constitutional amendment and like two days ago, our state legislature said, yeah, we're just not going to fund that. How can you do, how could they do that? That's a good question. We're going to find out. Like <laughs> right. there's a court court case, <laughs> court case to come, right? right. Um, but I mean, that's one of the things that would support entrepreneurs that they can actually have access to healthcare for themselves, especially because as we've said, these people are older, they're right. women, they have right. families, they have children. They're not this young 20 year old person who can just like not get sick, right? right. And do without healthcare. They're people that have responsibilities. Right. And they can't just fly by the seat of their pants and just hope that no one gets sick because they've got kids they're responsible for a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I'm sorry to hear that happened in Missouri. Yeah. I mean, so- they're they're going to sort it out. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it it I- is. I, yeah. It, it, I, yes, I agree. So I do think the social safety net in ways that we haven't recognized well enough is part of this entrepreneurial discussion mm-hmm. because if you're part of the you know, the Republican or the Trump or whoever those voters are, right? Not the values that you're espousing about being entrepreneurial and pulling yourself up. Well, all of those things are actually supported by a social safety net. You know, we can debate for a long time about what it should be, but we should have one and it should be, (laughs) it should be be reasonable. Yeah. Uh, So we, we do talk about that in the book. We also talk about recognizing the value of collective action, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in the early days of the pandemic, we saw this huge surge of support and people acted individually, right? Okay, buy from your local pizza shop, do this. There There was tons of great stuff that went on there. And individual action is phenomenal because, again, it gives you that jolt of endorphin, right? I did something yeah. good. The, it's the buy local. And that's a message we hear a lot here in my town in Columbia. The buy local. People will recognize that. You know, shop small. And it is it's great. But what we've seen in communities across the country is that the ones that have made a real substantial difference um, were came together in collective ways, like like started or grew community loan funds. There's an angel investment network in Stanton um, that we wrote a little bit about, right, where some wealthy people get together and, and listen to entrepreneurs' pitches. And it can be anything from like a pie shop to a t-shirt mm-hmm. guy, and they invest like $5,000. Yeah. Well, like, it's sort of like, why not, right? What are you going to do with that money if you've got a few million right. sitting around? Um, so getting involved, I think, in some of those organizations um, is, would actually be really helpful. And there's some other even cooler stuff, right, that kind of go into the tech world, like there are small small lenders um, and, and investment platforms, the one called Mainvest, um, that enables you to invest online in your local business. Yeah, um, it's kind of like Kiva. It's like yeah. a Kiva loan, but for, yeah, which actually those, I think you can support people in the United States with your Kiva loan, but this is like, it's like targeted, like micro targeted to communities. I thought that was just brilliant. Yeah. And it's an investment so that you make money on it coming yeah. back. It, uh, the thing with the Kiva loan is it's really right. a lot like a, do- it's a, it's donation. a donation. Yeah. Um, and part of this, I think, is inviting more people into the capitalist economy. You know, capitalism has kind of gotten to be a bad word among in the left wing of our political spectrum, but let's be real, right? We live in a capitalist economy. So one other approach you can take is to think about how you can change the way you participate in that, become an owner rather than a consumer, become a producer rather than a consumer, become an investor. This is something for women, especially become an investor. Just take the first step and learn as you go. That's one 
things I preach to women all the time. Start with $5, start with $10. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Yes. Just start it and maybe invest a hundred or 500 in the local small business. Because the other thing is, I'm not sure they really, they don't want donations. I'm an entrepreneur myself Uh and I, I want people to recognize I have a value and my ideas have value, right? Which is about investing and not about donating. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. Well, we've got maybe three minutes left and I had, I I was worried what we, this was going to run short. And here I have like all these things we haven't even talked about just in the last few minutes. What do you think we should, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think we really want to say? And while you're thinking about that, I'll say one more time. Um, I'm talking with Elizabeth McBride today, and she is, she along with Seth Levine are the co-authors of a book that just came out called The New Builders Face-to-Face with the True Future of Business. And um, it's an easy read. I would, if anything we've talked about today has been interesting to you, I would highly recommend that you pick up a copy. Thank you. And um, it is available so you can find it on um, our website, which is www.thenewbuilders.com. Oh, great. Because I always love to get, go right to the source for stuff instead of always Amazon or, yeah. Well, we have links on there, but yeah. we have so we have links to Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but also a handful of independent bookshops. Wonderful. Um, just encourage you to buy from wherever you want to, right? If you have an independent bookstore. Oh yes, we do. We have a rich, a rich system, a network of independent bookstores. We're a college town. Yeah, so that that is awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you can drop by and tell them to get more copies and yeah. put them in the window, that would be great too. Well, yeah. Um, Wait, what was your question? I would just say, you know, is there, is there one thought that we want to leave people with or, or anything that you for sure wanted to say before the hour was over that we haven't gotten to? So I would say that um, despite the obstacles, where we ended the book is in a real spirit of optimism. And that came, I think, from traveling with the new builders we highlight in the book on this journey through the pandemic. and as they struggled but at the end and we had to finish the writing so we accelerated this the writing incredibly and Wiley our publisher was very supportive in that when we ended it it was sort of like July February so still in pretty dark days of the pandemic and I called Daenerys and I was just like where where are you in your journey Um, and I can read you what she she said to me about the value of being an entrepreneur which I just think is very powerful so she said She found herself returning to a favorite Bible quote from 2 Timothy, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. She said, if you have self-control and love, you can be a powerful person. You have self-control and love. And that's, I think, for her and for many of the new builders in the book, it's kind of it is about self-control and love, right? It's about having the discipline to be a business person and then using the business you've created to do something good in the world. Oh, that's a lot. I'm going to end right on that thought. That's just such a lovely way to to end the show. Elizabeth, thank you so much for spending an hour of your evening uh, talking to us about uh, your new book. It's just been a thrill talking to you again. The book is The New Builders, Face-to-Face with the True Future of Business. Uh, It's by Seth Levine and Elizabeth McBride. Um, It's available at their website, which again is www.thenewbuilders.com. And I'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. Um, Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you uh, visiting with us. Thank you. It was such a pleasure.